Psst. Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Before we start today's episode, we wanted to share some exciting news that we are now on Substack, which is a platform that will allow us to send newsletters through email and also just have a place where you can see all of our posts. So for all of our episodes, we do so much research and we have so many thoughts that we just can't get to all of it in the episode. And we're so excited to have a place to share all of this with you. So we will leave our link for the Substack in this episode and you can first subscribe for free and let us know if there's anything you would love to see for behind the scenes content or any additional thoughts. Good morning. Hello. You know what I was just thinking about? We don't have a name for our listeners. You know how like Beyonce's fans are called like, what are they called? I don't even know. I think they're called like the Honey Bays or something like that. And then Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift's fans are called Swifties. Like we don't have like a name. What name would you like to give our fans? I have no idea. I have to think about it. All right. That'll be our homework assignment for next season. <laughs> well, today we are talking about our final book of the season, The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton. Why am I nervous? I'm also nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. All right. Well, I have a summary. Okay. This is going to be hard to summarize because I think the summary that I read online before we read the book did not do it justice. So in my attempt, I tried to do it justice. In 1866, Walter Moody comes to New Zealand to make his fortune on the New Zealand gold fields. Upon his arrival, he stumbles upon a secret gathering of 12 men discussing a series of unsolved crimes. These crimes include a missing person, an attempted suicide, a lost fortune, and a homicide. Nice. That's a pretty good description. Yeah. I... I'm not going to do a full character breakdown for this book. And that's because there's probably, there's, I think there's like 20 characters probably. And I would say that most of them are not super important to the main storyline. So I'm just going to kind of quickly go through the main ones. Yeah, and also astrology is kind of a motif throughout the book. So we will get to some of the other characters when we talk about that. Mm -hmm. So Walter Moody, I think some may consider him the protagonist of the story, but I don't agree with that. I think he is an important character, but I don't think he's the main character. Mm -hmm. But he's basically the bringer of justice in the book. He's the one that's like new to everything, new to the city. Everyone's telling him what just happened in the city. Then the next person is Crosby Wells, and he is the murdered one. 
The next one is Francis Carver. He's a former convict and the captain of a ship called Godspeed. Lydia Wells slash Carver. She is the widower of Crosby Wells, but then later in the story gets married to Francis Carver. Then Anna Wetherill, who I think is the main character of the story. She is a prostitute whose background is pretty unknown throughout the book. And at the beginning of the novel, she's found unconscious. Then some other characters that I will just say by name and a very brief explanation is Thomas Balfour, who's a shipping agent, Alistair Lauderback, who's a politician, Asuk, who's an opium dealer, Aki, who's a goldsmith, and Emery Staines, who's a miner at a place called Aurora. And that's it. Do you have anybody else? Um, no, I would just say that the characters that we meet at the beginning of the story, the 12 men that Walter Moody encounters at the hotel, are the first characters we encounter, and they take up the majority of the first part of the book. The book is divided into three parts, and most of the characters that Neha just named kind of come out later in their importance. So, this book is very layered, so it takes getting through some of these characters to get to the core of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the depths of the story, what theme did you pick? I picked trust. Okay. And I thought that this went through the whole story, but especially in part one when we're hearing from different characters about what happened, there's a lot that is either withheld or exaggerated, depending on whose story it is. And that question of trust came up a lot of, can we trust the characters? Can we trust all of them, just some of them? And which narrators are trustworthy? Yeah. What about you? I picked Destiny. Mm -hmm. Like Shruti mentioned earlier, this book has a lot of astrology in it. And I want to get into a little bit now The the very first page of the book is a note to a reader. That note is about astrology. It kind of explains that this book is written in in the old version of astrology, not the new one. And so you kind of know right away that this is going to be a big theme throughout the book. And then the second page is a character breakdown. And the characters are divided into planetary and stellar characters. And it names each character in correspondence to which zodiac or planet they represent. So before we're even getting into the story, you see all these references to astrology. And the third thing is each part has an astronomical chart in reference to the characters and their zodiac symbols, Mm -hmm. which is, at a glance, pretty confusing the first couple times you look at it because you don't know who these characters are or what this even means. But as you get deeper into the story, these become a little bit more clear. Yeah. I am not familiar with Western astrology at all, other than knowing that my sun sign is Leo. (laughs) So I think it's worth talking about a little bit here, just kind of what the author was trying to accomplish with Mm -hmm. this and what the different characters correspond to. Yeah. So I think Eleanor Catton, the author of the book, like, already had an idea of what the story was going to be. And she had an idea of the time period of when it was going to be set as well. And she discovered that there had been a triple conjunction in Sagittarius at the time the novel was set. Triple conjunction 
means either three planets are aligned or two planets are aligned with a star. And this is something that's pretty rare, I assume. I think depending on what planets you align with, I think those conjunctions can be meaningful to you. But in general, these conjunctions, I think, happen every 20 to 30 years. And so she decided at this point that she wanted to surround the story in this astronomical event. Mm -hmm. And then she also, I think while she was researching and planning the book, found this resource where you can put in any time and place, and it gives you the combinations of the stars and planets at that time. And so she did that for each character that corresponds to one of those signs in order to make this map in her head of how the book was going to be structured. Yeah, and I think every character that represents a star sign, like the Taurus, Leo, Sagittarius that we're all pretty familiar with, their character is a very exaggerated version of what that star sign's personalities may be. And so she really went into research of how these characters would respond or react to certain things that were happening based on their star sign. Yeah, so Charlie Frost, who's a banker, is Taurus. And Taurus has traditionally been associated with monetary affairs. Benjamin Lowenthal is the newspaper man, and he is represented by Gemini, which is linked to communication. And then Joseph Pritchard, the chemist, is Scorpio, which is linked to transformation, including alchemy and chemical transformation. Those are the few that I was able to kind of figure out. Do you have others? No, I honestly am surprised that you were able to even figure that because I I had a lot of help from the internet. (laughs) Because I'm a Taurus, and I didn't... I didn't relate to Charlie Frost at all. So I was like... I think the star signs that she uses have evolved. mm -hmm. I think probably she's basing them on how they were in the 1800s. And our understanding of star signs now are partially evolved and partially diluted by Mm -hmm. kind of like the craze for astrology. Um, But there are some interesting parts of this astrology connection that she makes. So apparently old alchemy says that the metaphorical fusion of the sun and moon can create the philosopher's stone, which creates gold. And Anna represents the sun or moon, depending on which way you choose to go. And Emery Staines represents the sun or moon. And when they spend night together, the next night is when she discovers gold in her garments. Mm-hmm. So there are little bits and pieces throughout that I think if we had spent more time with this book or if we went back and read it, we may have understood some of those connections more, but it requires a lot of really intricate and niche knowledge. Yeah, for sure. One other thing that I wanted to add that I thought was really interesting is I have a quote from Eleanor Catton. She says, as I tracked it over the year, I could see that certain planets were following each other and it set me to thinking about how I could put that into a story. Mercury, which is a planet that governs reason, was falling behind all the other players of the action. So I could build this narrative that the person who is trying to unravel the mysteries is one step behind it all. And that was kind of her reasoning for putting Walter Moody as Mercury because he's new to the town and doesn't have the full information that everybody else has. That was her realizing that Walter Moody was Mercury. Mm. That's an interesting way to think about it. That like, I guess with your theme, Destiny that 
the events that occur are maybe already predetermined or like mm-hmm. have this fate written in. Um, because when I was reading this book, I was struggling to find a reason for all the astrology references. Like I think when authors incorporate things like this into a story, it, it's usually a reference or a symbol for something else. And I was confused as to what she was trying to say with all of it. Yeah. That's why I think when I, I guess when you think astronomy for me, I think of like astrology. Fate. When, why do I keep saying astronomy? I feel like that episode of Friends where Joey gets like geology and geography mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I think when I think astrology, I just think of fate, which I don't necessarily believe in fate, but I think it's a pretty recurring theme in this book. Not because every character is obviously fated to something, but the collision of characters and their happy ending or bad, like bad ending is somewhat fated in this book by foreshadowing. Yeah, and whether or not the events are fated, the way the story is written makes us think that it is because mm-hmm. everything is so circular. Like we hear the events multiple times through the eyes of different characters and the timelines are confusing. They go back and forth and it feels like you're just going in endless circles. Mm-hmm. And so when you hear about something that happens and you've already heard it a couple times, it feels like that was fate or destiny or somehow written into the story. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else on astrology? No. Okay. You mean astronomy? Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's get into the book. So the book starts off with Walter Moody coming to New Zealand from Europe, I think, for the gold rush. So the gold rush is something that probably everybody's heard of, but mostly probably in the context of California. But it happened in a lot of places around the world, and especially the 1800s. So in 1861, gold was found in Otaga, New Zealand, and led to a gold fever that attracted people from all over the world. Because of that, New Zealand had a population increase and an economic boom. And in the 1870s, the gold rush gradually declined and many miners moved on but this wasn't really a bad thing for New Zealand they left historic infrastructure and equipment that are still reserved and a part of the New Zealand heritage now and the book is kind of in the context of the peak of that era yeah I think for me with this book I had heard it was set during the gold rush in New Zealand and I'd expected a lot more about the gold rush or I guess about the frenzy and Mm -hmm. I didn't get a lot of that in the book. It was kind of surrounding these characters, and gold was a part of it. But to me, the setting didn't really add that much. Like, I kind of felt like the story that she wrote, other than a couple descriptions of the coastline and one token Aboriginal character, I felt like the story could have taken place anywhere at this time. Yeah, it definitely didn't have, it didn't set up for a New Zealand scene. Like, I agree it could have happened anywhere. But I think she did talk a lot about the gold rush in terms of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you're talking about like, shipping agents. Like, those shipping agents only had jobs and a place to work because of the gold rush. And they talked a lot about how people were moving from this city to another city. So in that sense, I think she did kind of bring the gold rush element into the story. But, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely not as much as I thought it was going to be. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking about the Aboriginal character that you were mentioning, his name is Te Rao. Um, he's part of what's called the Maori people. They were an indigenous people from Polynesia that immigrated to New Zealand in the 13th century. The Maori language is actually now one of New Zealand's official languages, which hmm. was surprising for me to find out. But this gold rush that happened, the Maori people had a lot of, suffered through a lot of land dispossession. It led to a lot of ancestral land, resources, and disrupted their traditional way of life. But they also didn't really get into that in the book either. Mm-hmm. I think they focused a lot about the language barrier that mm-hmm. the Europeans had with the Maori people, and that prevented deep conversations or the right information to be passed along through the characters. Yeah, I think this raises two issues for me that I had while reading. One is that I felt like a lot of moments throughout the story were really contrived. Like, I felt like they were written in to make it more confusing and to prolong the story. Like, there would be times where a man would walk in and the person he was talking to was like, oh, a man just left here that asked about this thing. And then the second guy goes, oh, what's his name? And then the man conveniently forgets. Like, <laughs> just a lot of these, like, and, and that's what Tay Rao's story was to me. It's just like an obstacle just to create another obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing it kind of raised up for me is this question, and I think this goes beyond this book, but the question of how when you write a historical fiction novel, how the author treats certain issues and things that from today's lens we would find problematic. There's a couple of Chinese characters in the story, and she uses terms that I think today would be referred to as racial slurs in the book. Mm -hmm. It didn't sit well with me. I think that if you're reading a book that was written in a certain period of time, like if you read a book set in the 1800s and somebody was describing slavery and used language that someone at that time would have used of, I think the book should be retained in its original form. Like if we read that book today, I don't think it's appropriate to censure or change or adjust it in any way because in part that book is a historical document and Mm -hmm. it might not represent the whole culture or country at the time, but it represents how that one person was thinking or how certain communities were thinking. But I think when you write a book now set in a historical period, you are also saying something about the current moment because you are writing from this point in time. Mm -hmm. And when you write those kinds of things, I think there's a way to do it in which you can still point out prejudice and racism and discrimination, but not subscribe to the way that it used to be. Yeah, I agree. Because there's basically two major characters that are in this novel that are Chinese. And for like the first whole part of the book, I feel like most people just refer to them as the Chinamen. Mm -hmm. And the character breakdown that they have at the beginning of the book just explains their profession, which it does for most of the characters. Like one of them is a hatter and one of them is a goldsmith. But when I was doing my research for the book, I also saw a lot of character breakdowns from other people online that just referred to them as Chinese. Like, that was their identification. Mm -hmm. And I think the book promoted that kind of description. I agree. And I don't think you can't include characters that have prejudice or are racist or sexist. I think you absolutely can and should, because that's probably a a representation of 
a realistic community, but you can write it in a way where the narrator is not subscribing to that. I mean, mm-hmm. like Jane Austen does this so well. She writes in ridiculous characters who are so ridiculous, but we know that we're supposed to find them silly or judge them for certain things mm-hmm. because that's how the narrator portrays them to us. That's the narrator's voice. And the narrator's voice to me in the luminaries seemed like it was either neutral or even subscribing to that language. It's not even just the language, though. Like, for example, I mean, this is probably not the writer's fault. I think it was just an accurate description of maybe what actually happened. But there's one instance where, like I mentioned, there's two major Chinese characters. And one of them is being sought to be murdered. And then the other one is mistaken for the first one. Because he's like, well, they all look the same to me. Like, how do you tell the difference? Yeah, oh, I literally wrote down this quote. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of what you're talking about. Go ahead, say it. Yeah, so it goes, perhaps you're thinking of a different man, she said to Mrs. Wells. It's often hard to tell China men apart. Like, was that part necessary? (laughs) Yeah. It happens a lot in this book, I think. I just wanted to talk a little bit about what people from China, maybe why they were discriminated during that time. But China as a country was facing a lot of economic hardship and political instability in the 19th century. And they were encouraged to immigrate to other countries. And the gold rush was one of their biggest motivations for immigrating, especially because the demand for like cheap labor under dangerous conditions, obviously mining is a very dangerous job was so high that they targeted immigrants for these jobs because they knew that they didn't have to pay them as well and they didn't care as much. Which, it's just crazy that that still happens today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they very quickly took a bunch of steps back and realized that they wanted to stop people from immigrating because they couldn't handle the amount of foreign people coming into the country anymore that they introduced a poll tax, which they very, like, I don't know if they really talked about it directly in the book, but I think they alluded to some sort of discrimination that the Chinese people were receiving. But basically, at the beginning of the gold rush, they made people pay 10 pounds at entry. And as people were immigrating more and more, they upped that to 100 pounds. So I think... They mention this in the book for the character of Asuk, where he says something like, I came to this country and they robbed me of everything that I had. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, him talking about this poll tax. Now, obviously, they have repealed this tax and this law, but it was present for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of the discrimination in the book, we got a little hint of it here and there, but I definitely didn't know about that tax from the book itself. And I think one of the other things that happens throughout the book that maybe wasn't as problematic as the way she treated different races, but I did notice that the book is very heavily male-centric with the characters. There's only two female characters and there's like 15 men. And I I didn't know what to think of that because I know probably at the time there were very few women in these mining communities, but also you're writing a piece of fiction. Like you can build into it whatever you want. So I was a little bit ambivalent about that. But I think in some way I was okay with it only because like I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode is that I felt like Anna was the main character of the story and it kind of felt like everybody in the city either loved her or hated her. 
And it was written in a way that you were really rooting for her. So it was almost like I just didn't care about any of the male characters. Like, I really only cared about what was going on with her. Did you like Anna as a character? While reading the book, no. After finishing the book, yes. Hmm. What about you? I think that's probably a good boiled down version. I think I, Mm -hmm. while reading the book, A, I was annoyed that she was constantly called... I don't know if I can say this word because we're technically a clean podcast, but it rhymes with bore. Yes. It like always, like she almost never is referred to by name. And I think also just the way that she was crafted as a character, maybe not her directly, but the way others saw her, it felt very much like a stripper with a heart of gold kind of trope, which mm-hmm. is like old and boring to me. Like I just <laughs> feel like it's been overdone and it's not that believable and it's a little simplistic. Yeah. Okay, I think maybe it's time to talk a little bit about the writing style and the book as a whole. Okay. And I feel like now is the time that maybe, like, if you loved this book, maybe don't listen to the rest. (laughs) Or maybe do. Or do. Because... Actually, do. Because I have a specific reason why this writing style didn't work for me. Okay, go for it. Okay, well, at the very beginning, I was a little frustrated by the descriptions because I felt like the characters were described in a lot of detail but it felt very clinical and scientific to me. And so at first I was frustrated by it, but then I kind of thought it felt a little bit like the way that Sherlock Holmes would describe somebody where he makes observations about people and like, oh, they wear a gold watch on their right hand, which means that they're left-handed in order to determine something about them. And at that point I thought, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Like this is a mystery novel. We're trying to get to the bottom of things. And so this is how you choose to describe people. But I think as the book went along, I just struggled a lot with the structure, the characters, and the writing style, because I felt like it was a potentially very interesting plot that was made really boring by the writing style. Like, we hear about the same event 15 times from the point of view of 15 different people, and yet I still felt like after 800-something pages, I had no connection to any of the characters, and I didn't feel like the different descriptions we were getting were really different in insight or perspective or characters. And I... I think Walter Moody, to me, was one of my favorite characters. He was the most interesting to me. He kind of shows up in the beginning as this Sherlock Watson or Poirot kind of character. And then he is in the court case towards the end. But we don't get that much of him. And then the book is so circular, and I didn't understand the purpose for it. Like, I saw a lot of praise that the book was so structurally complex and took a lot of skill, but did it? Like, all she did was write bigger chapters at the beginning and smaller chapters at the end, and that doesn't take that much skill. Like, I I understand the construction that went into Mm -hmm. it um, and the idea behind it. And this goes back to the central theme that I picked, trust. I think what I realized is that as a reader, you really have to be able to trust the author. You also have to feel like the author trusts the reader. Like, an author writes a book, they need to have a high regard for the reader and respect them in some way. And I felt like I wasn't being respected as a reader. I felt like I was reading something that was trying to pull a fast one over me. Mm -hmm. Even the other books we've reviewed before that I didn't like, like The Last White Man or Half of the Yellow Sun, I didn't like them, but they had a point. This one just really, I felt like I was not being respected and and the writer was trying to trick me, if that makes sense. Yeah. So basically, the first couple chapters of the book is Walter Moody coming to the city for the first time, like, absorbing everything that's going on. He accidentally comes 
across these 12 people who are discussing this murder and he's learning about it. So it's interesting because you're learning about the characters for the first time and understanding the plot of the story. But then what happens is every character goes into what they think happened in 12 different ways. There's 12 men and you hear, you get 12 chapters of every one of them. Mm-hmm. And I think you could have easily pinpointed the maybe two or three whose perspectives were actually important to the story. And the other eight or nine were 100% irrelevant. Yeah, because after part one, those 12 men are not important. They don't show up in the story at all. And in the last chapter of part one, it's a very long chapter of a summary of everything that you've learned. And that one chapter is basically enough. So I feel like the first like 300 pages of the book are kind of boring. And a little unnecessary. Yeah. I think at the beginning, the way it was set up with Walter Moody and these 12 men, I think it could have been a really interesting play. Like, imagine like, different characters recounting their experiences, but only dialogue. And it kind of reminded me of 12 Angry Men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you get to hear those different perspectives, but it's interesting because the format allows for that. And then the other thing I thought was, like, clearly she has intentionally tried to do a circular structure in this novel, but... I don't see the purpose. To me, a book that incorporates a circular narrative really well is Wuthering Heights. Like that starts with a narrator of the event and then you get into the events and it kind of jumps back and forth in time and there's repetitive names and repetitive imagery and it's very circular in nature. But that has a point because that book talks to me, that book is a lot about like the lasting effects of trauma and generational trauma. But in this book, I don't Like, I guess your theme of destiny, but it didn't really tie into the plot or the characters to me. Yeah. See, like, when I think Wuthering Heights, I think of, like you mentioned, like a circular storytelling structure. I picture a spiral. Mm -hmm. As you're reading, you're getting closer and closer to the point. But then with this book, it's just an infinity circle. Like, there is no spiral effect that ends up to a point. And yes, you, there is some satisfaction to finding out what happens. Was there? Yeah. I, I think the last 50 pages, I felt like were satisfying. Hmm. The way the book is structured is it's part one, which is, like we mentioned, the perspective of all these 12 characters of what they think happened. And then part two kind of goes into kind of like more confusion. But from those planetary characters like Anna and Staines and Moody and Waterback, then there's a trial. So Anna, Staines, and Carver are being held to a trial of who murdered who and what happened and whatever. And then the trial gets over and then there's 50-ish pages of what actually happened, like the truth of the story. And those 50 pages were probably my favorite part of the book. I was still confused. <laughs> um, I actually, I liked the trial scene a lot. Mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. done well. And that part of the book to me proved that she's a good writer. She just did something I didn't enjoy with her writing style in this book. Um, but I really liked the trial scene. And the parts after it, to me, I didn't feel like it was wrapped up as neatly as I thought it would be. Like, there was a chapter almost at the end of the book about Moody's father, 
Mm-hmm. And that was it. It was just one chapter and there was no resolution. And I don't think it was needed in the book. It didn't illuminate anything for me or bring up interesting questions. So, so little things like that where not everything is resolved. I kind of ended the book the same way I felt after the first chapter where I was like, okay, I get some of it, but not all of it. Yeah, I think it was intentionally still kind of open-ended. But I think with Walter's dad showing up, like I think she wanted to give Walter an ending. And he came to the city to run away from his dad. So his dad coming back to apologize was like, oh, okay, he gets a happy ending, I guess. There was a, I wanted to read a quote from the Guardian review, which says, The Luminaries has been perfectly constructed as the consummate literary page turner, but it is also a massive shaggy dog story, a great empty bag, an enormous, wicked, gleeful cheat. For nothing in this enormous book, with its exotic and varied cast of characters whose lives all affect each other and whose fates are intricately entwined, amounts to anything like the moral and emotional weight one would expect of it. That's the point in the end, I think, of The Luminaries. It's not about story at all. It's about what happens to us when we read novels, what we think we want from them, and from novels of this size in particular. Is it worthwhile to spend so much time with a story that in the end isn't invested in its characters? Or is thinking about why we should care about them in the first place the really interesting thing? Making us consider so carefully whether we want a story with emotion and heart or an intellectual idea about the novel in the disguise of historical fiction, there lies the real triumph of Caton's remarkable book. Was that a good review? Like, was that nice or bad? Like, I can't tell it was both. (laughs) I know. I can't tell if I feel vindicated or more angry. It felt like... The reviewer didn't like the book, but felt pressured to write a positive version of it. That's like me right now. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because it won the Booker Prize, which I kind of think, okay, I don't think it's a legitimate conspiracy, but it feels like there was something going on with it. Because I read a New York Times review where the writing style of this book was compared to Jane Austen, Dickens, Bronte, and Joseph Conrad all in one paragraph. And to me, you can't be in the style of those four authors. Like they're very different authors. And I've seen other books that say it harkens back to Wilkie Collins and all these other authors. And it, it just feels like a big gag. Interesting. Cause is that just because it was like Victorian esque? I guess so. Which again, feels like grasping for straws as to reason to like the book. I saw a review on Goodreads that said, the greatest mystery of this massive whodunit is how it won the Booker Prize. That got me. Well, here's the thing. is I feel like we've hardly talked about the book. We didn't necessarily walk away from this book really understanding it. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for this podcast, we would not have finished this book, which is very rare Same. for me. Throwback to our season two intro episode where we found out that this book was under a category called unfinished. I think that was for a reason. Mm-hmm. See, if this book was a 300 page book, I would have probably liked it. Yeah, I think that's part of it was the length because if it was so I don't I'm not against a plot driven novel. I can read them, but I don't think they need to be longer than two or 300 pages. If it's going to be longer than 300 pages, I expect character development and investment in the characters. And I think if I had to sum up this book and the type of person that would like it and maybe why I didn't like it is I felt like the book had no heart. Mm. And if you would like a book 
that lays out facts and gives people's perspectives and you would be interested in going through an unsolved case, police files from 200 years ago, then maybe you would like this book. Yeah. I I think more than the writing style, which I agree, I think it was a bit much. In the beginning, I was kind of like, oh, look how nicely she spent three pages describing this hotel room. Now I know exactly what this hotel room looks like. Never did he enter that hotel room ever again in the entire rest of the book. So I was like, what was the point of that? Yes. It comes back to Chekhov's gun, right? Like Chekhov, the famous short story writer. I don't actually think I've read the story in which the gun appears, but it's the principle that like, if you are introducing a gun in act one, it needs to have importance in act four. Like Mm -hmm. you can't spend time and call attention to something if you're not going to then bring it to importance later. Yeah, that's a perfect way of explaining it because I think she, which I get, she is probably a passion for her descriptive writing and she wants to describe this hotel room because she can and she wants to. When a book is that long, there needs to be content mm-hmm. and interesting content, not just anything. It's like when you're just trying to fill up random words to complete a word count that you need for an essay like it kind of just felt like that i think maybe she was also trying to incorporate the victorian style of writing and how a lot of books at the time were serialized and authors were paid by the word and you can see this in her chapter descriptions at the top Mm -hmm. it summarizes what's happening in the upcoming chapter to almost comic degrees like some of the chapter descriptions are longer than the contents of the chapter themselves and i think it, I think she is trying to parody that, but it it just didn't come across that well. Like if mm-hmm. I feel like if she wanted to introduce that element of satirizing the word length and being paid by the word, she should have exaggerated it more. Yeah, yeah, it definitely didn't come off as like ironic or witty mm-hmm. or humorous to me in any way. If that was her intent. But I think more than the writing style for me personally, I had an issue with the structure. And I know that the structure of the novel has been well praised and... Yeah, I'm sorry. When I said writing style, I should have said structure. I think that's what okay. I meant more. Mm-hmm. And I think the astrology aspect adds a very interesting layer to the book. Yeah, when I was going through a lot of these thoughts and emotions... I got curious about these prizes because this was the winner of the Booker Prize the year that it came out. And I think I realized, like we talked about before, how I judge a book by its cover and Neha, you don't because you say it could be clickbaity. And I think this book was a case of that, not necessarily Mm -hmm. from the cover. I don't think I would have picked up this book just by the cover, but the fact that it won the Booker Prize and has the sticker on it put it higher up in my wanting to read list because I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, it won this prize. So the Berger Prize was first given in 1969. And it used to be called the Man Booker Prize because the Man Group was an investment company that was backing it. But now it's just the Booker Prize. And it was initially only eligible for books written by Commonwealth countries. So New Zealand technically counts, but Mm -hmm. they opened it up in... 2014 to any English language novel, which was a controversial change. But there are a lot of really famous books that have won the Booker Prize. Um, the God of Small Things by Ernest Theroy won. The English Patient, The Inheritance of Lost by Kieran Desai, Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. And I think it's been kind of hit or miss for me mm-hmm. on the prize winners, but it's kind of shrouded in secrecy how the winner is selected. So the 
foundation selects five people each year, usually a combination of critics, publishers, writers, and those five people will consider an entire list of hundred something books and they make a long list, a short list, and then there's a winner decided. So I think this book was maybe a good lesson in not being fooled by literary awards because we are not given criteria for how the book wins. And it's selected by five people who I think that's a pretty small size mm-hmm. and their experiences, their interests and preferences in books might be really different from what an individual reader wants. So I don't know. I don't know how I feel about prizes. I, I also bothers me sometimes when like, for example, it'll be like a thriller or suspense book. And sometimes on the book, you'll see Stephen King read this book or something like that. And there's instances where that lettering is bigger Mm -hmm. than the title of the novel and the author of the novel. I hate that. (laughs) On a similar note, I think I really don't trust when the author's name is bigger than the title on a book. Oh, interesting. Which... I know it can be the case for a lot of famous books, but I just don't like it. I'm like, oh, you think you're better than your book? Like, I'm not reading you. <laughs> I'm reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah, I never thought about that. But yeah. Anyways, I think it's time we digress and move on to Filter the Chai. <laughs> I feel like we've been filtering this whole episode, but yes. <laughs> All right. So what did you rate the book? I gave it a two Okay. out of ten. Because really, that did you not like this book? <laughs> <laughs> I have never had a book make me so angry while reading, and I think like you, if it wouldn't, if it wasn't for the podcast, I wouldn't have finished it. I easily would have given up around two hundred something. But the two points I gave it were for the premise, like the summary you gave at the beginning was interesting, and if this book had been handled totally differently, it would have been a great book for me. But no. everything else well i gave it a six on ten so there were parts of the book that i was really into and i really liked but like i mentioned my issue was with the way that it was structured and my second issue was i thought a lot of it was unnecessary Mm -hmm. also i feel like if i was to reread this book i would be able to do it with a better perspective i would want to do it where i was more interested in the astrology aspect of the characters as well so i feel like i'd be able to give it more justice if i read it a second time but would you no (laughs) so in hindsight i didn't hate it as much as i was while i was reading it it was definitely a struggle and not easy and i probably wouldn't recommend this book to anybody Yeah, I think my issue also, like you said, part two wasn't bad. I think I was just so angry. (laughs) Like, I couldn't tell if I was still hate reading it from how angry part one made me. Mm -hmm. That I couldn't separate whether it was fine or not. I just Mm -hmm. knew that it made me angry. Um, Yeah. And I think if I did ever read this book again, I would probably skip part one. But isn't that, that's a problem, right? Like, you yeah, write a book a and the first th- 300 pages are useless? Yeah. Anyways, do you think this book stands the test of time? No. What about you? No. Do you have a shelf discovery? I do. I'm way more excited about my shelf discovery than the luminaries. So, my shelf discovery is The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. 
It is everything that I wanted the luminaries to be. It's a Victorian novel, and it's set in the early 1800s. It opens on a moonlit London road. It's a very it has gothic influences, mystery. It includes an English county houses. It combines gothic horror with psychological realism, but at its core, it's a mystery. And it's also a long book. It's 600 something pages, but every page and every word is worth it. Like, I think it's just such a satisfying novel where the mystery at its core is not overly confusing, but it has layers where you don't necessarily feel like you're going to solve it just from the first few hundred pages. Mm-hmm. So that is The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. So my shelf discovery book is not like this book at all. The reason why I picked it is because our theme was to have a book that was based in another country. So the book that I could think of first that came to mind that did do this is The Thornbirds mm-hmm. by Colleen McCallow. Mm-hmm. This book isn't, like, historical fiction or, like, intellectual in any way. It's just, like, a pure romance family saga book. Um, I actually read this book because Shruti recommended it to me, like, many years ago. But it's in a fictional city in Australia's countryside. So they do actually describe a lot of the scenery and, like, the landscape. It's just, like, filled with romance, scandal, and is, like, a super fun book. It's all, There's also it's a TV series. Speaking of TV series, Luminaries is also a TV series that Eleanor Catton actually wrote, wrote and produced. Yeah, I wanted to watch it because I felt like it could be very different when it's translated to the screen. But I had to have, like, a Amazon plug-in that I don't oh, have. I heard it was bad. Like, oh. I heard people were, like... It's not based off the Luminaries book at all. It went a completely different direction. So maybe I would enjoy it. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> For that yeah. reason. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, Thornbirds was great. I think my mom was the one who introduced it to me. And mm-hmm. she told me that she watched... They serialized it when she was a teenager in the 80s. And she watched it and she said she was really disappointed because the priest was not attractive. <laughs> And he's, like, the central love interest. Yeah, Um, he is. I also will recommend one other book that I haven't read, but is by a New Zealand author, and it's a lot more about the Indigenous community, and it actually won the Booker Prize in 1985. It's called The Bone People by Carrie Holm. I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. And it's actually on this list described as a mystery novel. So I wonder if this would be a version of the luminaries that is more aligned with what we wanted because i think Mm -hmm. it highlights a lot of maori and pakeha culture which are both native cultures well it's sad that we ended our world tour with a book that we both didn't fully enjoy i know it is sad and because our last book kafka on the shore was like mixed feelings (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess that's, like, kind of realistic, because, you know, like, when you go on a really long vacation, near the end of it, you just kind of want to go back home. Mm-hmm. True. Well, that's that's it for season two, guys. Yeah, we, it's all right. We had a lot of books that we really enjoyed. Yeah, and the whole point of this, this season was to just open our eyes to non-American authors, and I think we definitely did do that. And now that we've read one book by Eleanor Catton, and we have deduced that she is probably a really great writer that just might open our eyes into her other books that she's written. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. 
Yeah. We are going to finish up the season with a wrap up and we'll be talking about all the books all together and our reflections and certain themes, compare and contrast, everything. Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be like when you come back from vacation and you look through all the pictures that you took when you were (laughs) on vacation, it'll just be like that. Exactly like that. (laughs) All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shithi, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you. To send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.